Hey everyone, welcome back to Oxford Policy Pod, based out of the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. I'm your host, Sruthi Palniapin, and we know it's been some time since we last released an episode, but I can say that it's great to be back with you all, and we have some exciting episodes in store for you in the coming weeks. Today, we're taking a look at post-pandemic recovery in Africa. As the number of COVID cases and deaths decrease in some African countries, the need to strategically reopen economies and develop sustainable recovery plans has become increasingly imminent. The pandemic presents a unique opportunity to build forward better. But what does build forward better mean in practice? What are some economic, fiscal, and social policies that African governments have adopted? And what is the role of the private sector in shaping recovery plans across Africa? Today, we'll discuss these questions with two experts and get a better understanding of what it actually means to forge a greener, more inclusive, and sustainable economy coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we want to highlight that this episode is in partnership with the Oxford Africa Conference team. The conference will be hosted virtually from the 28th to the 30th of May, and this year's theme is African Development, Rewriting Our Story and Asserting Africa's Future. Some of the prominent names for this year's event include Abebe Amaro Salasi, the International Monetary Fund's Director of the African Department, Tedros Adhanom, Director General of the World Health Organization, and the Minister of Finance in Angola, Vera Davis. Check out OxfordAfricaConference.com to get your tickets and learn more. And now, let's get on to our episode. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. It was time for countries to start uh, rethinking how to do development post-COVID-19. COVID taught us a lot. It taught us about resilience. It taught us about looking inwards. It taught us that this was a time when we needed to begin to find solutions that were homegrown. We are seeing a very accelerated interest in policy dialogue on how to do better in terms of how we focus on building our economies. Our first guest is Professor Kevin Chika Urama, the Senior Director of the African Development Institute. He formerly served as the Senior Advisor to the President of the African Development Bank, as well as the inaugural Managing Director of the Quantum Global Research Lab. Before joining the African Development Bank, Kevin held various executive leadership positions in academia, international organizations, and the private sector. He serves on several international and intergovernmental scientific panels and advisory boards, including the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the OECD Green Growth and Poverty Reduction Task Team, and the UNESCO Governing Board of the International Research and Training Center for Science and Technology Strategy. Joining him now is Oxford Policy Pod correspondent Hafsa Anwar. Professor Yorama, back in August 2020, you published the paper titled Building Back Better, Policies for Building Resilient Economies in Post-COVID-19 Africa. You argued in your paper that COVID-19 presents a unique opportunity for Africa to rethink its development policies. What has happened since then? Are we beginning to see a shift from business as usual to building a green, more inclusive and sustainable economy in any part of the continent? When I wrote that paper back in August 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic was still raging on, but uh, we were seeing a downturn, slowing down in its effects in terms of mortality rates and 
also the rates of infection. So I thought it was time for countries to start uh, rethinking how to do development post-COVID-19. A lot has happened on the continent in terms of lesson learning, global policy dialogues, and also we were seeing a very accelerated interest in policy dialogue on how to do better in terms of how we focus on building our economies. I've seen many countries in Africa now prioritizing policies for redirecting investments to programs that deliver mutual benefits and co-benefits to social, economic, and environmental resilience within their economies. And that's the best way to build back better. If we triangulate the social, the economic, and the environmental angles of development, we'll be able to build better economies that are more resilient to shocks as we go forward. At the national level, they have also implemented several policies in incentivizing proactive labor market policies to protect workers and their jobs at different levels. Of course, it's very different depending on the level of development of the countries within the continent. A lot of investments also going on in digitizing markets, digitizing the economy, the health sector, especially in agriculture, health, and education. We are seeing that happening and scaling investments in the health infrastructure because uh, COVID-19 actually exposed the huge gap in the health systems within the continent and also globally. But more interestingly, we are seeing a lot of investments in green energy and uh, several cleaner technologies than has been before and accelerating public sector investments. As we know, Africa is a huge continent, so there is no one-size-fits-all policy recommendation for building forward better. Professor Rama, can you give us some specific examples of economic and social policies that some African countries have developed that are showing early signs of success? If I give specific country examples, of course, Africa is huge, so I can't possibly cite all the great things that's going on across the continent. But let me start with Nigeria. Nigeria approved a 5.9 billion US dollar Nigerian Economic Sustainability Plan in July 2020. And this was to stimulate and diversify the economy, create jobs, retain jobs, and protect the poor and the vulnerable. Another thing that Nigeria had done is the National Medium and Small and Micro Enterprises Survival Fund, which was a major fiscal policy in the country that is helping to rebuild the economy in a sustainable way and rethink what we have been doing. Many countries as well have implemented a lot of liquidity, easing liquidity flows to small businesses and encouraging digital transactions and digital transformations on the continent. We've seen a lot of increased use of drone technologies, for example, to deliver medical supplies, to start delivering you know, merchandise and commercial goods and so on across the continent in Rwanda, in Nigeria, and in several countries on the continent as well. The digital economy, which mostly digital banking, the mobile banking, the Mpesa technology, was a very good lifesaver as well in Kenya and in most Eastern African countries as people began to migrate a lot more to cashless economies because of the fear of contacting COVID-19 by using paper money and so on. And again, another area which is crucial that I have seen 
a lot of improvements on the continent is refocusing on transparency, accountability in public financial management on the continent. Because COVID-19 deepened the debt sustainability challenges on the continent, raising the debt to GDP ratio from 60% prior to the pandemic to between 70 to 75% after the pandemic. And one great example I also want to give as to how well Africa has managed this pandemic is that um, we expect a rebounding in the economy in 2021 by up to 3.4% growth in GDP. So with all these, I would say the continent has fared well in how we have been responding to the pandemic. Thank you very much for the specific country examples. Um, they help us understand what is going on across the continent. You mentioned earlier an increase in investments in cleaner energy. So curious to know about other concrete actions in accelerating the energy transition to deliver long-term economic growth and sustainable energy for all. The energy transition towards greener energy and cleaner energy and better energy mix for Africa is one of the main objectives of the African Development Bank Group as well and many African countries. There was a program called the New Deal on Energy for Africa, which was really designed to help countries to transition to a greener and better energy energy system while accelerating energy access to reach universal access by 2025, which is almost here with us. And uh, just to give you some examples of the great things that have been happening on the continent with regard to the energy issues. And on the energy front, we have several energy programs that has been uh, going on on the continent. Some started before the COVID-19 and are continuing in terms of transitioning Africa to, to the greener futures. So most of the African countries have stepped up their commitments to the implementation of nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, and the National Plan of Action for Renewable Energy across the continent. One big example one can give is the Solar Home Systems Project, which is a major component, again, of the Nigerian Economic Sustainability Plan, dedicating up to $619 million on green spending in order to actually increase energy access to up to 5 million households in that country. The African Development Bank also pioneered, worked with the Global Center for Adaptation to launch an adaptation acceleration program to mobilize billions of dollars to help in climate change adaptation, including on energy issues. And then we have the Yellen Rural Electrification Project in Burkina Faso, which also includes installation of 100 mini-grid powered by aggregate solar PVs that will generate up to 11.4 megawatts of energy per hour to, to provide electricity to over 50,000 households. So we've seen a lot of acceleration of renewable energy across the continent during this pandemic period and also before the pandemic period. There are so many examples that I cannot just start listing all of them here, but Africa is actually transitioning very fast towards a greener future. We've talked about economic, fiscal, and social policies at the national level. With the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen the important role that global value chains play 
and the need for more regional integration across the continent. So at the regional level, have you seen an acceleration in investments and implementation of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement? In terms of deepening regional trade and regional integration, this is an area that Africa has been working on uh, quite strongly, even before the pandemic. At the African Development Bank Group, uh, President Adesina came with this program it's called the High Fives, and one of them, the fourth High Five, is on regional integration. And the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement was already in the making, but COVID-19 helped to accelerate the implementation and domestication of that policy, uh, that agreement across the continent. COVID-19 revealed the risks, the inherent risks in uh, having heavy dependence on global value chains. So countries are beginning to recognize the need to build productive capacity within the economies and reduce both tariff and non-tariff barriers within African borders. That is happening organically across the continent. And the AFCTA is expected to grow the size of Africa's economy by 4% and grow intra-regional trade by up to 52% when it is fully implemented. Some of the great developments include the African Heads of State Summit that was held on 5th of December 2020, where a decision was adopted to start trading already under that agreement starting 1st January 2021, using the existing instruments as the new ones are being developed. Already about 35 countries out of the 54 African countries have already ratified the agreement and work has progressed on the phase one negotiations of the agreement. Efforts are also ongoing to resolve the outstanding issues on rules of origin, schedules of tariff and concessions on trade in goods, and schedules of specific commitments on trade in services. Preliminary activities have also commenced in the phase two negotiations with the scaling of the technical working groups to focus on protocols on investment, intellectual property rights, competition policy, and e-commerce slash digital trade. These are all very encouraging policy developments and demonstrations of political will across the continent. And we expect that the implementation of the AFCTA will help quite uh, strongly. And that is why the African Development Bank is strongly supporting that implementation uh, through both financial support and technical support to enable that uh, transitioning and implementation of the, of the agreement. Suffice it to say that COVID-19 creates again a huge opportunity for reprioritizing regional value chains and strengthening sub-regional value chains and growing the real economy within the continent. Thank you. Professor Rama, thank you very much for sharing with us the progress made across the African continent. Um, to wrap up, any last words of advice for policymakers on things to consider in building resilient economies? To build resilient economies, for me, includes three things. Paying deep attention to both the social inequities that growth can create and making sure that we address them, and also economic inequities and also environmental degradation. So if we are able to triangulate the social, the economic and environmental angles of development in our policies, 
we'll be able to build back better, more resilient economies that can be able to absorb shocks going forward. Thank you very much, Professor Yurama, for sharing with us some of the opportunities that have emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic across the whole African continent. And thank you for helping us understand what does Build Forward Better mean in practice. Now, to talk about the role of the private sector, we're joined by Tony Patrick Cole, the co-founder and former group executive director of the Sahara Group, an energy conglomerate with operations spanning the entire energy chain. The group operates in 38 countries around the world with over 4,000 employees and an annual turnover of $11 billion. Additionally, Mr. Cole spearheaded efforts carried out by the Sahara Foundation globally. He continues working to inspire the youth of Africa through charities that aim to influence change in Africa by bringing together young leaders to develop and implement impactful solutions. Currently, Tony Cole is at the Blavatnik School of Government as part of the Transformational Leadership Fellows Program. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Sutin. Yeah, so I want to dig into your own personal experiences. So you're the co-founder of the Sahara Group, an energy conglomerate that operates across the continent. So what are some lessons that you have learned about doing business that crosses these different countries within the continent? Absolutely. Great question. I'll I'll put it in three buckets. I would say the first thing is that you have to respect cultures. Uh, so that's very important. Every country has its DNA, and so you must respect that. The second thing is relationships. With each country, everywhere you go, you meet human beings, and human beings are relational. And so one of the things that you must do when you're going into a new country, crossing borders, apart from respecting cultures and traditions, is the relation. And then the third is that you must be bringing value. You want to be made to feel as if you're working with them at home, you're one of them, and you're adding value to them. Yeah. So how do you personally think about understanding these various cultures and needs of countries that you were not from? So first, you identify that there might be a need. Okay. So when you identify there might be a need in a country, then you do what I would call a recce. Uh, So you go into that country and you begin to study the country. So what I usually do when when I go into countries for the first time is I go to what you would call the very local uh, down-to-earth places. And where do you find this? The gas stations, taxi drivers, the marketplace, uh, where people sit down and hang out, not usually your tourist places. So you go to where the local people go. Go to where the indigents go and sit with them and just have a conversation. Now, they will tell you straight away their pain points because as they begin to speak about uh, the country, usually they will speak about politics. So almost everywhere I've been to, most people are very dissatisfied about something the government does. And so that gives you an indication of what's going on. Yeah, really genuinely understanding and connecting with the people there. So I want to now talk about the impact of COVID and particularly how companies have responded to it. So we know that there have obviously been massive economic challenges worldwide, but I want to specifically ask you about what you've seen in Africa. How have companies there particularly responded to the challenges of this pandemic? 
So first and foremost, the um, Africa got a break. COVID was not as bad as we thought it would be first. So that was a great thing. But secondly, and more importantly, was that Africa had handled pandemics uh, like the Ebola, um, HIV, uh, rollback, uh, malaria. And so we had a lot of communicable diseases that had been going through the continent. And so for a couple of years, the medical uh, medical system and tracing and tracking system was already in place. And that really played uh heavily to our advantage uh, once we had to start tracking uh, COVID. But prior to all of that, we had to deal with a global uncertainty and global fear. And if you remember when COVID started, the first few months, first three months of 2020, no one knew what was going on. And so there was a huge ramp up uh, of of um, medical equipment. There was a huge ramp up of uh, calling the government, calling private sector to come in. And so from a private sector perspective, what we did as a company uh, was to come together with other private sector uh, companies, work together to raise a fund, put that money in the fund, and we began to build centers, isolation centers, holding days, uh, trying to get as much equipment as possible. COVID taught us a lot. It taught us about resilience. It taught us about looking inwards. It taught us that this was a time when we needed to begin to find solutions that were homegrown. And those are things that worked for us. Okay. And even though the pandemic's direct impact wasn't as heavy within the African continent, I still want to talk about certain trends related to the demographics in Africa over the next couple of decades and how that might create certain challenges, but also opportunities for furthering development. So we know that the African youth population is expected to double to over 830 million by 2050, according to the African Development Bank. And we also know on the flip side that the unemployment rates have been incredibly high and as the population increases, will likely increase as well. So what do you think should be done to help build up these recovery plans in order to meet the needs of these young people who will be looking for employment or are currently looking for employment? That's a great question. And, and that's, one of the, that's one of the biggest challenges that the African continent has. On the one hand, you have what looks like a huge potential with the youngest demographic of human beings uh, globally on the continent, able-bodied, ready to work, and all of that. And so that's a huge advantage. But then you flip on the other side and you look at what opportunities are available for them, what type of education are they getting right now, uh, what environment are they growing up within? And you know immediately that once you look at those demographics and the in, uh, indicators on the other side, that it's a huge problem. And so it's a ticking time bomb, uh, which we must do everything to avoid. So to your question, what can we do about it? So the first aspect of it is that the, uh, the, way, the, the way technology is advancing globally it has positioned Africa in such a place, such a way that the advantages on the market that Africa brings to technology is huge. 
And so you've had a lot of interest coming into the continent of which technology is a driver. Now, there's a huge space for the backbone infrastructure. So what I, what I term to be the digital highway, there's a digital highway that needs to be built across Africa that will connect those countries that are on the coast, which literally for years have been the ones that have been a bit more um, successful, with those that are in the interlands that have no access to the coast. Infrastructure in the past and how development worked in the past was that you needed access to water so that uh, for, for ports and transportation so that you could hit an international market. Today, because the internet and technology means that you can be anywhere, even in the most remote place and have access to a global market, we are standing at what would probably be the salvation of huge numbers of young Africans because we can now connect them to a market even though they don't have access to the shore. And this is critical. So what needs to be done is for countries to begin to develop what we call the digital highway and the marketplace, which again, uh, the African Free, Free Continental Free Trade Agreement uh, does for them. Yeah, and what do you see as the specific role of the private sector in helping build up the space of new jobs, um, including promoting the digitalization that you are suggesting? Absolutely. So one of, one of the key roles that the private sector brings to the continent is accountability, monitoring and evaluation, and delivery of uh, the policies that governments bring into place, so implementation of policies. Now, over the last 40 years, the private sector has been very instrumental in bringing accountability, trust, and belief into the onto the continent. And the reason why this is the case has been that a lot of the policies that the government had put in to create an enabling environment that would uh, drive development has been pushed by the private sector, essentially. And the relationship between the private sector and the government to improve the kind of policies uh, that, uh, that have been, uh, that have been uh, passed is increasing. And I also want to ask about the role of education in all of this. Mm. So what have you seen as the way the education system needs to evolve or positive examples of the education system and helping develop the skill set and potential of these young people for the jobs of the future? Absolutely. Okay, so the, the current education system and curriculum and the way education has been delivered uh, leaves a lot to be desired. And so three things that would need to be done as far as ed education is concerned on the continent. The first aspect of it is that they need to strengthen the curriculum so that it's more of cognitive, it's more of the ability to, to think ahead, to plan ahead, and to operate in a world which is very, very ambiguous, is volatile. Uh, and so we need to be able to think about that. The second thing that people need to be aware of uh, as far as education is concerned is that the delivery, the channels of delivery of, uh, of education has changed completely. So mobile phones, uh, WhatsApp, SMS, video conferencing, 
that method of getting information and education across will make such a huge difference. So you don't have to really sit down within the classrooms before you can get educated. So that has to be developed a lot more. Very, very important that we do that. Now, the third aspect of, of education is the interaction that people have with with those who are not familiar, so it's an inter globalization kind of thing. So what does technology do? It begins to put you in touch and you see a lot more about what's being done elsewhere. You can adapt methods that are working elsewhere very quickly within your continent and be a lot more adaptive uh, to how education moves. Now, that is something that has to happen. Yeah, and as we conclude today, I want to think about certain opportunities that COVID has also presented to completely revision some of the development policies and initiatives within the continent. So what are some of your concluding thoughts or advice you would have for policymakers who are developing economic policies to be more inclusive and more sustainable? So COVID has shown us that we have to think ahead. We need to plan ahead. We need to plan for the worst. Secondly, it's told us that it requires many hands, multiple hands to be on deck. So policymakers must have a wide stakeholder engagement, extremely important. Thirdly, um, it's taught us to cost properly. Nobody anticipated what the cost of a pandemic would be until it happened. But it also showed us that we we're resilient enough to survive those cost things. And that has been something that has been that, that has come out very, very positively. So we have to be able to cost our policies, cost the implementation, and just look ahead, knowing that we have the resilience to progress. Policymakers have to have to factor resilience into policies that they make. Yeah, so certainly always thinking ahead within every decision that's made in the current moment, I think is very valuable advice. And we very much appreciate all of your expertise that you've shared with us on this podcast. Thank you, Tony. Well, thank you for joining us on this special episode in collaboration with the Oxford Africa Conference. As a reminder, the conference will be from the 28th to the 30th of May, and tickets for the event are available now. So get on over to OxfordAfricaConference.com and check it out. It is sure to be great. The executive producer of this season of OPP is Leanne Ryan Hume, and this episode was researched and produced by Hafsan War and myself, and edited by Alicia Aslan. To keep up with the latest on our episodes, follow us on Instagram at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter at OxfordPolicyPod. We'll be back soon.